It's nice to hear those happy sounds, isn't it, as they head out. When I was small, we had a problem in our house with mice. Mum and Dad found that their bar of chocolate, from which they had one square a night each, they were very controlled, had little bite marks on it. The mice had been at it. There were little nibbles and scrapings. Turned out not to be mice, it was me. (laughs) I remember thinking that if I just ran my teeth over it gently, they might not notice. So whilst I had a mouthful of delicious, illegal chocolate, they would never be any wiser. I was wrong. You know, they did notice. Initially, they did think the offender was a mouse, but it didn't take them long to work out who the real culprit was. And I was very young at the time, probably 21 or something. (laughs) Maybe four. I was about four at the time. And I honestly thought I could get away with it. But even at four, I knew that that chocolate was not mine. I knew that it was wrong to eat that chocolate without permission. I knew that it was wrong to try and cover up and do it covertly in the hope of not being found out. I knew that I wasn't being truthful in the way I was acting, even at age four. But being so young, it wasn't particularly hard to catch me out. But there's something in all of us, isn't there, that makes us, perhaps from the very start of time, tempted to do the wrong thing, which challenges us to twist the truth just a little bit to suit us, which constantly seeks to put us first. Adam and Eve fell into it. They were tempted. They gave into it. And that temptation quickly led into a downward spiral where about sin started to take hold. They blamed each other. They wanted to hide. They argued. They lied. And so it went on. And this morning, as you know, we're continuing with our series of Dare to Follow. And this morning, we're thinking about speaking the truth. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Speaking the truth. I hope we all want to speak the truth. The Bible speaks a lot of it itself how we should speak the truth, how we should do it in love, how our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And we don't need to fuss around with what little kids do with their pinky promises or our words only being true if we say the words, I promise. We know that's not what the Bible teaches. When we speak, we should speak with truth. It should be considered. Our words should be honest. But culturally, even... This can be a challenge, I think. Maybe in the British culture, that sense of telling a little white lie. I don't know how many of you have watched Nativity. And uh, in Nativity, the story of Nativity goes that the teacher sees uh, an old friend who's now someone he doesn't get on with. And he makes up this big story about how brilliant his school is and how actually somebody from Hollywood is going to come and watch it. And this lie just then blossoms because someone overhears and starts to spread it. And before long, it's become this massive thing. And the teacher finds the priest because he teaches at a Church of England school. And he says to the priest, oh, um, uh, the children are asking about what is a lie. And the, the vicar answers, well, a lie is a lie is a lie. And it made him feel even worse. 
In the British culture, we sometimes like to think a little white lie surely okay. We're just trying to be kind to other people. But the Bible says no such thing. It says we either speak the truth or we don't. In other cultures, there's that expectancy of never using our words to offend or disagree with other people, but actually planning not to do what we agreed to because we don't want to. It's hard. We don't want to offend one another. That's the last thing we want to do. But the Bible is very black and white on this. It says, do not lie. But it also says, whatever we should speak, we should speak with love and with respect and with honesty. So our conversation sounds simple this morning, speaking the truth. But actually, I think it's quite a challenge. And so let's have a look at the passage that was read to us so beautifully. And we're going to come to Simon Peter first, because that's where it starts with Simon Peter. He was an amazing man. What do we know about Simon Peter? Anybody? What do we know about him? His name means the rock. Fantastic. He was a fisherman. Thank you. He was very close to Jesus. Sorry. He was one of the disciples, I think I heard. Thank you. So they're the things we know. He was one of those first disciples. He was a fisherman who was called by Jesus to follow him who early on realized who Jesus was, declaring him to be the Messiah. He was the one who didn't get into the boat. He got out of the boat, and he walked on water. He was the man on whom Jesus said he would build his church. He was the one who was willing to leave everything. He left everything to follow Christ. He was one of those who was present at the transfiguration, He was the one who only that night cut off the ear of the soldier in an attempt to stop Jesus from being arrested. But here in this passage, it all begins to unravel for Peter. In verses 15 to 18, it says this, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood round the fire they'd made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. It was a dark night. Jesus has been arrested. The disciples, after an initial attempt to fight, had then fled away. And here, Peter and another disciple, they're the only ones that we hear about who had the courage to try and follow, to get as close to Jesus as they possibly could. But the adrenaline was high, and they are scared of what's happening. They're in enemy territory, and in a heightened state of fight and flight, they are scared men. When asked if if they are one of Jesus' disciples, Peter denies it. Can you imagine how Peter felt standing there? The inner tussle over right and wrong. That sense of having denied Jesus when Jesus was in such a desperate place himself. 
Yet Peter's petrified. He's scared of being dragged in. He's scared of being beaten. He's scared of being accused too. And so he doesn't speak words of truth. The passage then switches to inside the high priest's house where Jesus is being questioned. Verse 19 says this, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who have heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what's wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? What a difference. Here, we find Jesus who's staring hatred, anger, even death in the face. A night that he must have been dreading. But now, even as he is beaten, even as people are lying about him and spitting upon him, Jesus doesn't falter. He still speaks the truth. The courage to speak the truth at this point was so very costly. Yet unlike Peter, who lost courage and wasn't honest, Jesus once again shows us the way to live. That he speaks nothing but the truth. He refused to be intimidated by Annas. He provokes an angry action from one of the other leaders there who slaps Jesus across the face, but Jesus will not withdraw. Jesus refuses to be manipulated into any kind of false admission. Instead, he speaks the truth. He makes sure that the leaders surrounding him know that that is the case. What happens to him? He's bound and he's pulled off to another guy, Caiaphas, and the scene then moves back outside to Peter. Peter, who's had time to reflect, time to think. Will he this time have the courage to respond with truthful words? Only a few hours ago, when Jesus predicted his denial, Peter was the one who said, I will never, ever leave you, Jesus. I will follow you even to death. And all the other disciples agreed too. Peter was not alone in that statement. But what does Peter do? Verses 25. Simon Peter stood warming himself. He was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Simon Peter. He'd had enough courage to remain in enemy territory there in that courtyard. His heart, though, is pulling him to Jesus but his humanity is making him weak. He is desperate to know what is happening, but he's standing amongst those who are part of the priest's household, the enemies. What if they do recognize him? What if they recognize him as the one who struck out in the garden? What would happen to him? So when he's questioned the second time, Peter denies Jesus again. He's becoming increasingly vulnerable when he's challenged a third time, this time by a relative of the man whose ear he cut off, Peter's really dicing with death. And in the face of this threat, he denies Jesus for a third time. 
What a contrast John builds for us in this passage, doesn't he? There's Jesus, who is faithful. Jesus, who's truthful in all he says, even in the face of death, even though people are lying and abusing him. He speaks the truth. And then there's Peter, the man on whom God is going to build his church who's human and struggling and finding it hard. And before his questioners, he's too afraid to speak the truth, denies everything. And then the cock crows. Before everything had gone wrong, Peter had been this amazing, strong man of faith, hadn't he? Speaking out, leading the way, stepping out in faith, recognizing who Jesus was in his divinity. He'd given up everything to follow Jesus. He was an incredible man. But now on the darkest of nights, he stumbles, he falls, he lies. And in this bleak, dark place, he doesn't speak the truth because of fear. Fear for his own safety, fear for what's going to happen to him. We've seen this fear in Peter before. Having stepped off the, off the boat in complete faith with his eyes and his heart and his mind fully focused on Jesus. He was then distracted by the waves, the wind, the storm, and he began to sink. His fear shifted from God to the situation, and he started to sink. Now on another dark, spiritually wild night, Peter once again loses his focus from the Messiah, and in so, in do, in do, so doing, sinks back into that darkness, sinks again into fear. Such a response ends up leading Peter away from the courtyard to a place of solitude where he weeps bitterly. But there's a third group of people in this passage, Annas and the other officials. As high priest, Annas represents the people of Israel, the nation that was chosen by God, those who had been led out of captivity into the promised land, the ones who had been blessed with so much and given a special covenant relationship with God, who had amazing leaders like Moses, Samuel, David. They had been given God's law. They had been given the promise of this Messiah who would come and save them once and for all. Yet now we find Anna standing with the Messiah himself. But instead of falling before him in adoration and praise and worship, we find Anna trying to get lies told about him in order to condemn Jesus to death. This is the ultimate rejection of God by those who they were supposed to be standing up for God. They were lying to have the Messiah killed. The Messiah, the promised one, who was the epitome of goodness, love, kindness, truth, now faces the spiritual leaders of Israel who call for capital punishment, who seek to condemn him, who do all they can to prove Jesus guilty. Truth was not their tool. Instead, they got people to tell lies to try and accuse him. The guiltless, the truthful one is now sent on to Pilate. And there's an irony found in verse 28. Let's read it. It says this, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, 
the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. What irony. Here's our leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. They wouldn't enter Pilate's palace because they didn't want to become unclean. They wanted to be able to enjoy the Passover, to celebrate it, to participate in it. The celebration that was held before God to thank him for the blood of the sacrificial lamb. It was all about God's salvation, about being saved on that night from Egypt, about being cleansed by blood and purity. They were looking forward to eating the Passover meal of the lamb while actively engaged in demanding the death of the Lamb of God. As Pilate questions Jesus, Jesus makes it clear that his kingdom is not a threat to Rome. That as a king, his mission was simply to testify to the truth. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is a kingdom of truth. That his kingdom is a truth that will set a person free. Irony hits home again as Jesus, the imprisoned one, offers Pilate, his judge, true freedom. For a moment, Pilate's engaged. He's fascinated even by what Jesus is saying as he answers that, thinks about that question, what is truth? What a philosophical question from Pilate at this point. Maybe Pilate was cynically dismissing what Jesus was saying. Maybe as a politician whose life was probably full of compromise, and constantly balancing various forces who ruthlessly used his power, his world was probably far more grey than black and white. Maybe, though, just maybe for a moment, Pilate caught a glimpse of truer, purer, brighter world that Jesus offered. We don't know. But what we do know is that the moment passed and Pilate reports back to the Jewish leaders stating that he found no basis for a charge against him. We know the rest. Weak Pilate misses his opportunity to acknowledge the truth. The Jewish leaders wanted no part in the kingdom of truth. Peter is broken because he was unable to speak the truth. And so Jesus is condemned to death. I wonder how you would have fared that evening. I wonder, would you have had the courage of Peter to even draw near to Jesus at that time? I wonder whether you would have had the courage of Jesus who refused to be intimidated. Would you have the courage to speak the truth, even if it resulted in being beaten ultimately in death. I wonder what you do now when you're faced with challenges and difficulties, when you're faced perhaps even with lovely people, but the easiest thing to do is actually to lie with them. But that's not the way of God. Jesus' example demonstrates this. To lie or to tell less than the truth is never right. Sometimes we need to avoid perhaps engaging in a conversation. We need to stay quiet. We need to change the subject in order to protect the truth because we don't want to hurt someone, because we want to act in love. 
but nevertheless, we still avoid ever telling a lie. We've got to be careful with this part of daring to follow because we need to understand our deep intentions of our heart, which is hard. We're called to always tell the truth, but over this truth we must speak out in love, always thinking about how what we're saying and our words impact the listener or those it could affect. And this is hard, isn't it? Reality is hard for this message today. It's hard whether you're the minister or whether you're someone who's here for the first time. It can be a hard thing to do and to follow. And this is where we also need that wider word, understanding of God's word, isn't it? Because we don't want to lie. Of course we don't want to lie. But actually, we also need to speak in love and in kindness and in goodness. The Bible tells us endlessly that we should clothe ourselves with love, hope, and faith. It's a beautiful passage that I'm sure most of us know from 1 Corinthians 13 that speaks all about love and how easily we can be motivated by the wrong intentions, how easily sin slips into what we do and how we live. I wanted to read to you from Corinthians 13, but our time is running away with us, and we are coming to the table shortly. But that last verse in 1 Corinthians 13 says that we need to put on faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these things is love. And so do we dare this morning to follow the challenge that we find in the passage that we've read together? Sometimes we do fall. Sometimes we're like Peter, and we knowingly don't speak the truth because we're afraid. Sometimes we get angry and we argue the wrong way and we become like the leaders. Sometimes, like the leaders, we're simply blinded to what the truth is and we don't live the truth or or speak the truth because we're confused ourselves. Or we're more like Pilate, who rather than sticking up for the truth, missed the opportunity because he wanted to stick with the majority and follow the crowd. We all fail sometimes. Telling the truth at all times can be extremely difficult to navigate for lots of different reasons. But we're always called to tell the truth. We're always called to follow the example of Jesus. And as Jesus told the truth, he did so in love, with love, and for love. May we have the courage to do the same. Amen.